Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. On this episode, it's just me. John Paul is still hard at work at Rush. Uh, I can't even imagine what kind of hours he's doing there as an intern, but um, we're looking forward to doing more recordings at the WNS meeting. But I'm here at the spine section. I'm lucky to get in front of Katie Arico. Katie Arico is, and I'll let her introduce herself, but from my understanding, she's a lawyer and she is also the lobbyist and representative in the Washington office for both the AANS, which is the American Association of Neurosurgeons, and the CNS, which is the Congress of Neurosurgeons. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be here. Katie, tell us first, you know, you're not a doctor, right? No. Tell me a little about your background and where you went to school and all that. So I, uh, I'm a native Washingtonian, which is uh, pretty rare, uh, actually, third, third or fourth generation, I'm not sure. Uh, which so, side? Is the Virginia side, the Maryland uh, side? Well, I was side? actually born in Washington, D.C. at uh, Columbia Hospital for Women, which is now Condos, has been for a while. Okay. And then I grew up in Northern Virginia. And I did all of my schooling in the D.C. area. I did my undergrad at uh, Catholic University of America. And I got my law degree uh, at, at night. Um, it took four years to do that night, a couple of years after I, I had graduated from college. I went to law school at night and I uh, graduated from the what is now called the um, Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. Well, he's one of my heroes. That, it's, Justice Scalia, I should yes. say, is one of my heroes. We've got to get back to that. Okay, yeah. so you go to law school. So I went to law school. Um, I Right out of college, I uh, was very serendipitous. I had... Uh, uh, I was I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. It was about April. I hadn't started panicking quite yet, even though graduation was only a month away. And I talked to my mom, and she had run into an old family friend of ours, a, a gentleman named Charlie Plant. And I grew up with his kids. My mom and Charlie were on the elementary school PTA, so we had this 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 uh, longstanding relationship um, from our days in Great Falls, Virginia. And he, they just got uh, got together, started sharing uh, stories about where the kids are and what's going on. And and uh, when they got to me, she said, "Well, Katie's graduating. She has no job." And he said, "Well, as it turns out." I will have an opening sometime this summer for a legislative assistant. My current legislative assistant's leaving and going to um, law this school. Is after law school or this before law school? This is before law school. Before law school, right, law school. At, okay. right, right after I graduated from, right as I was getting ready to graduate from college. And so um, I, uh, I went and met with him. I didn't have a resume. I didn't have anything. We spent most of the time catching up. And he said, when can you start? And I'm like, well, okay. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I had no idea what the job entailed. I had no, absolutely no interest in politics or policy. I really had no, no clue what I was going to do with my life. And so Charlie had a uh, small uh, healthcare uh, consulting boutique firm, and he had a number of different clients, one of which was 
the WNS and the right? CNS. And we also represent, or the firm also represented the National Kidney Foundation. He had a couple of clients in the transplant space. Charlie was actually instrumental in getting the um, ESRD, the end-stage renal disease law, Medicare's uh, uh, benefit passed back in the 70s. So he was uh, fairly influential um, in healthcare circles at the time. This was in the mid-80s, 1980s. And uh, so I just got to work. I started going to congressional hearings, uh, learning about the legislative process, learning about healthcare issues um, and the like. And that's when I decided to go to law school at night. So I worked oh. for Charlie, uh, primarily focusing on the neurosurgery portfolio of issues while I was going to law school at night. And then after four years, sort of came to the fork in the road where I was offered a uh, judicial clerkship with a yet-to-be but soon-to-be-established new um, circuit in uh, or district court in uh, Peoria, Illinois. It's like so balanced Peoria, Illinois, versus staying in Washington, D.C. and continuing to work for Charlie. But the neurosurgeons wanted me to exclusively, exclusively work for them at that point. So I decided that it was much more interesting and potentially fun to stay in D.C. and, mm-hmm. and do this sort of lobbying politics. This was in 1991. So that is that. So which administration was that? This was uh, pre-Clinton, so uh, Herbert Walker Bush, George Senior, yes, Senior, Bush so Senior, Bush, yeah, Bush forty-one, Bush forty-one, okay, the, yeah, and. Um, and and around that time, or I could have, if I'd gone the if I'd gone the the, the, the clerkship, that would have thrown me into probably a law firm, and I would have right. had a traditional, you know, billable hours. And so you this know, is the only so job you've really ever had, this right? This is the only lawyer. job I've ever had. Wow. And I'm in my uh, soon to be. I started in '85, so I'm soon. I'm I'm working up on my 35th 35th year. year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's why you know in so June. much. Yeah. So. Yeah, so yeah, fast forward. I mean, back in back around that time in the late 80s and early 90s was when the um the Medicare physician fee schedule, the resource-based relative value scale or RBRVS was passed into law by Congress. And up until that point, neurosurgery was generally uh, working on things in Washington like tort reform that was that's a perennial issue. Uh but NIH funding, uh, other other sort of neurosurgery niche yeah. pre-managed issues. care it was before correct managed it was care. before all of that yeah. the days were good you know there were a few signs that 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 uh, that the Medicare was going to sort of start ratcheting down uh, reimbursement rates but it was still pretty 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 uh, pretty pretty whatever you charged you got you got, I remember you got looking at records in L A and that was the time when surgeons were doing like fifty a hundred surgeries a year it was sort of typical right that'd be like a normal practice and but you were charging. Crazy. A lot more per surgery, so yeah. so it worked out, and so that was obviously not sustainable from a federal budgetary uh, uh, policy perspective. So so Congress passed a, a law called uh, the Omnibus uh, Reconciliation Act of 1989, which set up this new Medicare fee schedule, and it 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 was evident that uh, the AMA, American Medical Association, the American College of Surgeons could no longer really represent all the issues that the different medical specialties needed them to represent in Washington. They had their own political, internal political constituencies. And so that was around the time in the, in, when I was graduating from law school that organized neurosurgery decided to put a bigger investment in 
their Washington operation. We're still working with Charlie Plant and his firm as a, as a contract he lobbyist. He's not. He died. Okay. Passed, a, passed away a couple years ago. Um, but um, so, uh, you know, that we started getting more involved in socioeconomic issues, which we really hadn't at the time. So, and those were issues I loved. I loved, you know, kind of mixing it up on the reimbursement issues or the tort reform or sort of practice um, management kind of issues. And, and Charlie really loved the NIH funding and the public health side. So it was a really nice, nice, uh, nice team. And uh, so that was, that went on for a couple of years. And then in 90, Six, 1996, Charlie announced he was going to retire. And so the organizations had to decide what they wanted to do. And they explored a number of options, but decided at that time the best idea would to be established a full-time office in Washington that would be dedicated with dedicated staff just to work for the um, or neurosurgical societies. And so in 97, that was established and I was just happened to be right place at the right time uh, and was selected to be the director of the Washington office. And so, so that's that, the birth. Well, so so that, that's just the birth. for our listeners, so many of the folks uh, listening are not in America, but in America, uh, let me just say that Katie and her Washington office, there are eight, eight of you? There's, uh, there's, there's, there's five in the office and then we have two outside okay. of the office. So like close to eight uh, full-time. So I've known Katie uh, probably well for about 15 years since I left USC, but I'd heard about her a lot before then. And Katie and her team are basically the bulwark. They're the line of defense between us and all those things that you don't want to hear about. And you give us a report, right? You give us reports at our national meetings about these are things going on in D.C., politics, reimbursement, all the reasons why, for example, neurosurgeons make make as much as we do are you're defending that for us uh, along alongside us I should say because we have our committees too that work in that right yeah I mean I think that um, our biggest challenge and and our our um, our, our our mission is to uh, advocate for neurosurgeons and the specialty of neurosurgeon to make sure that uh, patients continue to have timely access to care for necessary neurosurgical services Obviously, a big part of that is making sure that uh, neurosurgeons are adequately reimbursed so that you are in a position to keep the office open, the lights on, and, and do all the things you need to do to take care of patients, including, uh, and, 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 including working towards new innovative techniques for, for, for taking care of your patients. So, and so that all takes money. And so a lot of what we end up doing is is advocating both before Congress right. and the, the, the regulators and third-party payers like Blue Cross or Aetna are united to make sure that they're adequately uh, but compensating your, you, but also covering the services that your patients need. So we do spend quite a bit of time and have uh, you know, a fair number of both uh, not just staff, so everybody but volunteers who, working on everybody who knows me issue. knows that I'm not politically correct and this is yes. not a politically correct podcast but it's not a political podcast so for those of you who are young out there understand that the vast majority of neurosurgeons we're very complicated. Doctors really don't fall into these easy categories of conservative, liberal, that kind of thing. But the vast majority of neurosurgeons are sort of complex but lean to the right a bit on a lot of policy issues because of the nature of what we do. And that's not true for all neurosurgeons, but it's, would you agree it's a general trend, right? Well, I think, I think that um, that has been certainly true in the past. I'm not sure it's holding up, I, well, although I would say 
how neurosurgery goes, so too are the country's demographics. So it seems like younger neurosurgeons are a little bit more idealistic. Well, they haven't had to deal with anything yet. Right, exactly. They haven't been sued yet. Their first prior authorization. Right, their first lawsuit. Their first lawsuit, their first tax bill. You know, it's like all the, you know, so so I think that's probably generational no matter what profession you're in. Um, And then, you know, there are pockets, you know, pediatric neurosurgery tends to be uh, a a little bit more left of center. Although I'm shocked all the time that some PDPs neurosurgeons will say, oh, you guys are all liberals. They're like, no, 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 we're super conservative. Anyways, I don't want to get too political. But I would just say, I I, want to make sure that your listeners understand, look, I work in Washington, D.C., Washington D.C. is all about politics. There's, 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 there's nothing, nothing else. They, they call that <laughs> policy making. It's, right. it's, you know, I mean, it's politics. But our, uh, our, our challenge and our, and what we strive for is to always be nonpartisan, and yes. we lay out a legislative and regulatory agenda. It's usually good for two years. We revisit after every congressional cycle. These are our top priorities, and we will work with anybody, you know, Democrat, Republican, Independent, uh, yes. or, or, or you know, Green Party, doesn't matter, if they are supportive of our issues, our agenda. 100%. So, so you're, you're so a lawyer. So you, you I'm know, a neurosurgeon, so we speak much more simply and with less caveats. But I think it's fair to say, to summarize, we're not making a political statement. What we're saying is that Katie represents what's best for neurosurgeons and neurosurgery patients. Correct. And, and that can fall in all different – and you've got you to gotta cobble together it, it depends on issues. Agreement. Like yeah. Republicans tend to be more supportive of us when it comes to getting medical liability reform. Right. Democrats tend to be much more supportive of us when it comes to reining in the abusive tactics of health insurance companies. Right, right, right. So we have to be – We're in the we, middle. We, we can't pick yeah. one side or the other. We have to be facile because we need to have allies on both sides of the aisle and hopefully – coming together, uh, you know, to to, to support our agenda. Isn't that part of our problem that as surgeons in particular and doctors in general, that we really are, we we have no real allies truly. In other words, you know, nobody really claims us or has our back. And that's why we need people like you, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I got your back. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) But no, I mean, do you have a natural... um, you know, ally or spokesperson, you know, in Congress or something of that nature. I don't know if that's kind of what you're getting at, Mike, but, um, you know, the unions are constituent for ex- constituent right. teachers, so, so nurses, teachers, they, they generally, yeah. and, and, you know, they, they, the, there are certain politicians who are very much, you know, their voice and right. their advocates inside Congress where it matters or inside a particular administration. What I will say is we're, we're getting, physicians are getting better. I don't know if it's because more physicians are getting angrier about, you know, just the, 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 the problems out there of getting patients, you know, the care they need, the hassles, the, the, the reimbursement cuts or what have you. But more physicians are becoming interested in running for Congress. And so yeah, that's good. That's been very good for us over the past, you know, really decade. More more doctors have run for Congress and that has been enormously helpful to our cause because now we have at least, you know, a half a do, you know, a dozen or so 
Um, are we talking about Tom and, Price? And we're talking about, well, yeah. he's one. I mean, like uh, Dr. Phil Rowe, who's an OB-GYN from Tennessee, has been our best ally. He's going to be retiring at the end of the year. But we have a number of, 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 of surgeons uh, as well as other, other physicians in Congress. And they're in the room when the decisions are made. They're our allies and our voice and okay. our, and so our Katie, advocates on the Hill. So that's been great. A young, promising doctor, and I try to encourage everybody I meet who doesn't have a big past with a lot of skeletons in a closet. Look, run for politics. Start yes. with the local school board. Some young surgeon comes to you and says, Katie, I love neurosurgery. I'm going to do it all my life. But I'd also like to have a part of my life that's involved in politics, either a local or national level. What do you What do you tell that person? Okay, so we have an exact uh, situation happening right now. We have a neurosurgeon, a guy named John Cowan, who lives in Rome, Georgia. Georgia 14 is the congressional district. There's an open seat. He's running for Congress. Great. I'm going to vote. I'm, I'm and, from Georgia. But he came to me 15 years ago when he was, or so, when okay. he was a resident at University of um, Michigan and said, I'm going to John, John Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, CowanforCongress.com. Okay, so don't be afraid to vote for him. Don't yeah. be afraid to donate to his PAC or his Yeah, his campaign. Because yeah. he is, he, he's, um, the, and this is the kind of person you want. It's somebody who's been involved in organized medicine. He's been super involved in his local community. I believe he's a deacon in his church. He's, he's, he's done, he, he's built up a local name for himself as a leader, as a, as a community uh, friend and colleague. And, he, and he's doing all, he's done all those things throughout his neurosurgical career. Uh, and and just you know doing some things for organized medicine too. He used to serve on one of the Washington committees subcommittees. He's uh, been involved with the American College of Surgeons, uh, N- National Quality near NISQIP, their their Surgical Quality Improvement Program. He's uh, president elect right now of the Georgia Neurosurgical Society. We hope he can't take that job because he gets elected to Congress. He's um, involved in the Medical Association of Georgia, uh, of Georgia. So it's important for neurosurgeons whether they have a if they, whether they want to work, run for a political office that's, that's elected, whether it's state or federal, to gain some of that, that, that experience and working as a volunteer on behalf of organized neurosurgery, either through a state neurosurgical society or, or one of our committees that the Washington Committee is yeah, involved in. How does a person in. get in contact? Like, someone's listening. They want to, they want to they reach want out to get to involved. Next John Cowan. Yeah. Do you have an email? Yeah. yeah. My, my, I'm, 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 I'm pretty much uh, very Googleable, but my email is K-O-R-R-I-C-O at neurosurgery.org. Um, I keep neurosurgeons hours, so which is to say, twenty four seven, three sixty five. But I'm happy to always, you know, hear from younger neurosurgeons or any neurosurgeon who's interested in in policy and, and politics, because we'll 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 try and help Put them to work. find a place. Yeah, yeah, if it's not neurosurgery in our national, maybe it's at a state medical association or state neurosurgical society or some other way uh, to get involved. Um, okay, now we could do a, po- a show with you every week. You have so much knowledge in your brain about the history and the current issues. We could go on and on and on forever, but we try to keep this podcast at about 20 minutes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with a very, very important topic because these podcasts are usually released weeks or months after we record okay. them. Okay. So we're in an election year yes. right now. 2020 is an election year and there's a lot of hot topics. There's a, we could talk about so many aspects of this. Okay. Tell me what's on your mind without being too political about it. Right. This year, this is an election year. It's a big year. The Senate and the House are also having elections, right? Tell us what's on Katie Rico's mind in Washington. So I think um, 
Well, I mean, you mean as far as neurosurgery's agenda? Or well, either just one. Generally? No, just, okay. Yeah, whatever you well, think. Well, I mean, I think you know, right now as we're speaking and when this airs, hopefully this will have been resolved, the coronavirus issue is now all-consuming. So mm-hmm. as is often the case, we have been working, for example, uh, hard to get uh, legislation passed that would – Uh, prevent the uh, health insurance companies from imposing prior authorization requirements on neurosurgeons as readily as they're doing right now. And we've got a bill, H.R. 3107, the... uh, Explain what a prior authorization uh, is for the... Prior authorization, uh, for those that uh, aren't aren't familiar, is a required... Is there, the, the health plans, let's say Blue Cross, you want to do a, you want to get an MRI for your patient or you want to do spine surgery uh, for your patient. You just can't schedule that and then submit a bill to Blue Cross on behalf of the patient and, and have that bill be paid. You have to get essentially permission from Blue Cross before you order those tests or perform that surgery before you can do them. And so that process can take anywhere from two days to two months to go through, depending on what So it seems it to make sense because they're paying for it, but what is the onerous piece of this? Uh, just the, the, you know, faxing and refaxing and phone calls and trying to justify red the red tape, okay. why you believe this is medically necessary in a covered service, etc. So it's just a hassle because meantime, the, de- the, the, uh, the time that the health plan's delaying paying, they're making money off of the premium dollars mm-hmm. that their, their uh, subscribers have And some people give paid. up. And some people give up. So that's, it's a money-saving or, I would say, money-making opportunity for mm-hmm. the health plans because any dollar that's not paid out is essentially retained. So anyway, we've been really working and have gained a lot of traction on a bipartisan basis to, to set that legislation up for, for success this year. And now coronavirus comes comes down. And so oh, who see. knows what's going to happen. Surprise medical billing, another huge issue, both for neurosurgery as well as the general public and as a priority for the president, uh, as well as all the congressional leaders in both parties. Our biggest issue, and we've been working to get a good bill on this, is not so much what a health plan would be required to pay an out-of-network doctor for a service they provide, but it's what the impact on on that solution is going to have to in-network Yeah, so before you go further, unwrap that, because most people that hear surprise medical billing, they think, of course, patients shouldn't receive a surprise, onerous, giant medical bill that they didn't know they were getting into. So you think about it, it's like, yeah, pass that because it's hurting patients, but but unpack how that actually plays out next. So what the health plans want, and, and for neurosurgery, Roughly three to four percent of all neurosurgical claims, whether it's you know for whatever, whether it's an office visit or a surgical procedure, are are out of network bills. So very rare, very very rare. Very rare. Yeah. Now, certain geographic New York, there's more of it. New Jersey, so there's certain geographic differences because the cost of living or the way the health plans are are are, are concentrated or, or what kind of what, what kind of choice there is. But um, so it's a very rare occurrence. But what Congress and what the health plans would like to see is what some in Congress would like to see. The health plans are trying to get Congress to pass a federal law that would set a federal payment rate that would apply to all private health insurance. So similar to what they've got for Medicare, but for all health insurance company, mm-hmm. uh, uh, companies. And that would immediately cut, it's been estimated, uh, uh, reimbursement to the f- affected physicians by upwards of 20%. 
because you would be taking what you may have a negotiated contract with Blue Cross, and now all Blue Cross has to pay you know, some federal rate uh, that's been set by Congress, which is likely going to be lower. So we're fighting against that kind of payment rate setting by the federal government in the private sector to address surprise medical bills and and trying to you know find a find a way that patients will be protected so they never have to pay more than the network rate that's going in that particular area but that would let the doctors negotiate have a have a fair negotiation process see this is interesting plans. because most people that hear about this they think there's just a patient and insurance company and you squeeze the insurance company against the patient so it's going to help patients and that's what all the politicians say but we're actually in the middle and that's not right. to say that we're you know there are rare cases where there are exorbitant bills but from what i understand what you're telling me about is the insurance companies have already figured a way to leverage this to their advantage right because think about it if you right now let's say you're getting you know, a hundred dollars. You've negotiated a hundred dollar fee for your your procedure that you're doing uh, with Blue Cross, and the federal government comes in and says, "Well, now Blue Cross only has to pay fifty dollars um, for all out of network care." Well, why would Blue Cross ever negotiate again to pay you that hundred dollars if all they have to pay is fifty? They will start dropping physicians from their networks. Just like that, because they will only be responsible for having to pay a lower rate. Yeah, right. And so we're fighting against that because that would wow. just be yet another assault and you know part of the systematic devaluation of surgical services, which has been going on since 1992. So I mean, um, this is fascinating to be because the way your mind works and the way the people in the Washington committee, the way you guys think about a problem, is actually a little different than how I, as a clinician or a professor, see things. And it's just every time. I talk to you, I, I feel like I get smarter. So again, we could do a podcast with you every week to talk about the coolest stuff. Uh, we are a little limited by time in how we do this, uh, but we're definitely going to have to have you back. Yeah, I'd love to be back. And, uh, you know, after the, the election sorts out, perhaps maybe, or even if sooner, um, you know, part two or whatever. Excellent. I'm glad to, to visit with you and your, uh, your uh, listeners. Well, thank you for your service to our specialty. And thank you for your time today. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Great. Mm-hmm.